0: This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Danielle Laporte, and I'm here with Linda Sievertson, where we are chatting with some of the most amazing authors, published and creatives. Between the two of us, Linda and I have written something like twelve books, including our co-creation, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan. And we're here because we love this game. We love everything about the publishing industry, about getting ideas. Out- and being as creative as you possibly can. This all started with us interviewing some of our favorite agents and fellow authors for a membership group that we have called The Beautiful Writers Group. And because we don't believe friends should let their we are sharing the interviews with you. So for the next 45 minutes, because 45 minutes is a new hour, we will be digging deep and going for the light. Welcome.
1: Hey
2: everyone, Linda Siebertson and Danielle Laporte coming to you with Lisa Gibbons. If your memory is foggy today and you can't quite place the beautiful face of Lisa, you're going to remember the voice. Lisa is one of the iconic voices of our time. She was a longtime correspondent for Entertainment Tonight and then Extra and had her own syndicated talk show, but has a voice that has launched more radio hours than anyone, including, amazingly, Casey Kasem, and Deb Clark. Lisa is also an Emmy winner, a New York Times bestselling author of Take Two, Your Guide to Creating Happy Endings and New Beginnings, and the second woman behind Joan Rivers to win The Celebrity Apprentice, where she raised a quarter of a million dollars for her charity, Lisa's Care Connection, which services those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease and other issues. Much to the Donald's dismay, he said that Lisa won by being nice. And we're going to talk about that because nice is the new black as far as we're concerned over here. It's all true, too. I've been on the receiving end of Lisa's enormous optimism and big heart for over 25 years of friendship. She's actually part of the cleanup crew of my upcoming memoir, My Midlife Mess. And we'll talk about that, too, about how she's navigated a few of her own messes. So in closing, I will say that Lisa is on her own whirlwind book tour right now. We've just got her. The book is Fierce Optimism, Seven Secrets for Playing Nice and Winning Big. And it's phenomenal. And last week, she lost her voice for the very first time. So did I, almost. I have a bad cold. So the two of us were worrying that we might be croaking here together, but hopefully we'll get through it. Thankfully, Lise has healed enough to have just guest hosted the talk over at CBS here in L.A. this morning, and she just raced home to be with us. So thank you, Lise, so much for fitting us in on your tour.
1: Oh, my friend, you know, I'm mad crazy about you, and I love love who you are in the world. So to be able to talk with your friends and share with your audiences is is a real gift. So thank you to you and Danielle for having me. Mm.
2: My goodness. Mm.
0: Lisa. we always start with a blessing. So everybody, no matter where you are, it's always a good time to breathe. So let's just like anchor in, take a breath. We're here now to give witness to a shared truth that absolutely everything is progress, that we have all that we need, and that brilliance is unfolding here and now. And by brilliance, we mean light. And so it is. Mm.
2: So it is. Amen. Amen.
0: Mm.
2: All right, Lise. I think back about, I don't know, maybe it was 15 years ago, when our now ex-husbands were making fun of us. They were saying how (laughs) irritating we were uh, that we woke up every morning happy. Remember that?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There was nothing that could annoy them more.
2: (laughs) I know. And you and I were laughing. We were laughing at their cynicism. But we were also really grateful knowing that optimism does not always come easily for people. does it.
1: You know, it's really a mental style, isn't it? It's kind of an emotional competence, I think, that gives you not this naive kind of um, in denial veil, um, not this Pollyanna, you know, kind of really annoyingly happy veneer, but it, <laughs> it's nothing more than that. It's just really saying, okay, great. I've got more ability to rebound and more ability to, to heal, to recover from setbacks. I can bounce back and fight back because I'm an optimist. Because when, when heartache happens and when failures occur and setbacks happen, as they do for all of us, yeah, it's a sucky day and yeah, you're having plenty of negative thoughts. But those are temporary things and what's permanent is the way you react and respond to those things. And so I say wear that label proudly, be in office. Because if you do, we know the physical benefits, but you know, Mayo Clinic, the science is so mm. solid behind this, Linda, as you have talked about it from your first book.
2: Yeah. You know, This is
1: how you live your life too.
2: Our parents were really optimistic. I mean, my dad was in the Optimist Club. Your parents, Lisa, in South Carolina, were so
1: optimistic about life and about you in general. That helps, right? I think when we begin to get messages from the world about who we are, those are the thresholds that allow us to walk through the portals of whatever labels we decide to keep. Because I do think we label each other, that it helps us organize our world and make sense of our world. So wearing the label nice has been in the business world, a loaded kind of landmine because people assume if you're nice, then you don't have backbone. If you're nice, then you're easily manipulated and you can be pushed over and So my challenge in writing the book was to show the strength of nice and to say, if that's what's in your worldview, you know, strengthen your strengths. And if that's one that you've got that you're lucky enough to have, then I say lead with it and let's just rehabilitate the word nice because it needs a transformation, really does. So as you know, this all started happening for me, really crystallized for me after Celebrity Apprentice and Everyone said, oh, she's out. First week, she's gone. She's a pushover. You know, she's too nice to get. <laughs> so I had some resetting to do.
0: Lisa, do you think is nice the same as love? And is there a difference between optimism and hope?
1: Oh, I love the question. Mm. Thank you for that. Mm. I think that nice and love are dotted lines to each other. But I, in my definition, and we do need to start a redefining of it. My definition of nice, though, is being decent and being aware being aware of other people because when you're able to own who you are as i say in the book when you can pee on your own turf and can be <laughs> aware of what you think you're bringing into the world it's really intention isn't it and if you're present for i learned it in the art of the deal i read donald's book the art of the deal in 1987 so did i right? Because, you know, look, he's got some truths to teach us in business. Um, I don't share a lot of political beliefs with him, but I have found value in some of his business lessons. And, you know, Donald Trump was where I read in these kinds of words where he said, you know, the best way to prepare for the next moment is to be present in this one. So I think being nice means allowing other people to show up in the way they need to, while you're keeping your own boundaries and showing up how you need to, you really don't need to sabotage anybody else, trip anybody else up on your way to wherever you're going. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I want to go back to hope for a second, because I have a contentious relationship with hope, not with, <laughs> not with optimism. But sometimes, you know, there's lots of times when it's time to give up, You know, I'm a big fan of Seth Godin's philosophy, which is like (laughs) sometimes it's way smarter to quit sooner. Right. So tell me how you quit. Tell me why. Tell me how you decide when you're going to quit something, when it's really not working.
1: Well, I so relate to what you're saying about hope. Hope is kind of a, you know, vapor. Yes, You know, you're kind of hanging on to this thing that you can't really wrap your hands around because it's a changing goal and it's undefinable except to us at our deepest personal levels. And so, but I, for me, it's been easier to look at, okay, optimism to me is very different. Like I have to believe if you look at the political candidates, and I'll definitely answer your question directly about the holding on, letting go business. But if you look at, at leaders that have inspired us over time, and even this spate of candidates we have now, I bet you they would all define themselves as bill gates does as warren buffett does as optimists because the reason we want to vote the reason we believe in our political system is because we believe that we have the inherent ability to make things better this is your hope part to make things better to say okay What makes America great? Well, I would say what makes America great is our resiliency and our ability to continue to get back to what our core values are. And we get off track. Okay, great. Get back up. That's key. That's an old-fashioned value with which we were all brought up. And I think that their job, the elected officials' job, I believe, is to inspire us to reconnect with that. And, you know, I love the cliche, hope is not a strategy. It's really not. But optimism is... A time-tested, true strategy, even the Securities and Exchange Commission gives bigger loans and more loans to people who are optimistic than they do to those who are negative. So, you know, like with any quality that we can acquire, this is a good one to begin to test yourself to see if you can get there because there are big dividends.
2: You know, this is bringing up the Donald a little bit here. So I do have a couple of quick questions. Let's see. You are not expected, obviously, Lee, to dish on your TV boss here. But have you given him any pointers about perhaps being nicer on the campaign trail?
1: <laughs> well, first of all, I will answer that by saying when when your work speaks for itself, don't interrupt.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I wouldn't dare to do that. I think that we all do sign our own work with... I'd much rather be the master of my silence than a prisoner of my words on this one. However, you know... People who know him, and I really don't. I was on a reality show with him. That's contrived. I've interviewed him a little bit over time. That's an artificial setting, too, in a certain yeah, to a certain yeah. extent. But people talk about the two sides of him, and I wrote about the two sides of him, too. You know, I did choose to see him through this veil of being a paternal figure. I could relate to him being a dad. There's not a lot that I can relate to. Who can? I mean, he loves controversy. I'm conflict avoidance. He, you know... <laughs> The height, the heat, the, the closer he wants to be to it. Right. So we're very different people, but we both value loyalty and family. And, and those are expressed maybe differently. But I asked him to help me with a charity that I really liked. It, it's Second Wind Dreams, and it's like Make-A-Wish for seniors. Yeah. And um, there was a woman in Marietta, Georgia. She wanted to be a beauty queen again. She had had a crown when she was a young girl. And before she died, she wanted that again. She was 80-something. And I called and said, could you just get her... You know, he, at that time, owned the, the Miss Universe, Miss USA. Could you get her a sash and a crown and make her an honorary Miss USA? And no. He did all those things. He did a video. This was not for publicity. There was no end game for him. He was just being nice, mm-hmm. you know, just being nice. Mm-hmm. So I believe that's a part of him. And I also believe the other stuff is a part of him. Yeah.
2: I interviewed him years ago. It was 2001. <laughs> and I found him to be... Humble, actually. He was giving credit for his book at the time. I think it was called The America We Deserve. There was a man in the room, and he was like, Oh, you know, I complimented him on the book. And he said, No, 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 this guy wrote it. And the guy looked at me. You know, I was a ghostwriter at the time, and they both knew that. And the guy looked at me and he goes, I did not. I didn't write it, Donald. I mean, you're an amazing writer. I mean, he was so embarrassed. And I thought, Wow, you know, I had spent my career trying to get credit for books that I had ghostwritten when a lot of people don't want to give you credit. Right and, and Donald was throwing the credit out like it was no big deal at all. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And then we got into a little, a little bit of a tangle. Not much, but, you know, at the time I was flying my green flag really, really strong. And Lisa, you've always been like the biggest supporter of my green dreams. And so I went there thinking, oh, you know, I'll get him to admit some stuff about his development, his building. And so I asked him about that, and he's like, well, of course I'm a an environmentalist. You have to be with the dang building laws. And I thought, oh, that's not actually what I meant. (laughs) So it was obvious that we didn't agree. But, you know, I was surprised in some of the humility I saw.
1: You know, I feel that where we are with this election has been such an opportunity, such a mirror for us at this point in time. But, you know, no matter what candidates we support, in my view, it's not okay to malign and bully and shame people for who they support. As much as we may, you know, like this one or not like the other one, when people are closeted about, you know, the candidate they're supporting, that's not the goal. That's not cool. So I think that we all have a chance to to really look at that, you know, and look at where, where all this stuff is coming from. But, you know, I had a delicate situation, Lynn, as you know, when a few months after Apprentice, I did get a call that this is before he announced his candidacy and he told me he was going to run for president. And I, I said, I'm, you know, as many years as he's flirted with it, I'm, I'm not surprised. And congratulations yeah. on coming up with that decision. And he said, well, we're going to do an event in South Carolina. And they tell me that you're somebody I need to get on board there, South Carolina. And mm-hmm. I said, so, well, yeah, I, I can do that. I mean, I, she, she likes me and you know, I, I could do that. You could do that. Can't you? And, and I, I said, you mean endorse you? I, And I wanted to be, I wanted to honor, obviously, who I am and respect and be grateful for who he had been in my life with my foundation. And I said, "Um, I do, I do want to find ways to be supportive. And I suggested, why don't you have your campaign manager call me and we can talk about it. So when the campaign manager called, I said, you know, I, I didn't want to do anything that would embarrass Mr. Trump on the phone, but I've been out in the forefront of gay and lesbian rights and transgender rights for a long time. I've been on the stem cell board in California and, you know, I'm registered as a Democrat. And I started listing all the reasons why I said (laughs) I might be a a political liability. I I wouldn't want to, you know, put him in a difficult situation like that. But I know he values caregiver rights and veterans, spouses of veterans. And there's a lot of commonality there. And if there's an event like that, then I would love to share our mutual platform. So. You know, there's a way for us all. Look, whoever gets voted in, um, some people that aren't going to be happy. They don't give us a satisfaction survey until the next election. But we're all going to have to find ways to have our voices heard with whomever is in that office. Uh, This is not a smooth
0: segue at all. Let's go from Donald Trump to Eckhart Tolle. Oh, there we go. I, I, Eckhart was in Vancouver. He lives in Vancouver, as do I. And I was at his event last weekend. And he was talking about the fact that he never reads his book reviews. (laughs) Mm. Because, and his lead up to this was talking about how negative thoughts are really sticky. And, you know, in his really sort of elfish, innocent way was talking. I was on Amazon. I thought, oh, they like my book. Oh, they like my book. Oh, just like my book. And he noticed even Eckhart Tolle and his incredible (laughs) transcendence felt the
1: the sticky negativity. So do you read your book reviews? You know, it's such a great question. And I love your window on him. It's so absolutely perfect. Um, You know, I just uh, was made aware of a study, I think, from the University of Ohio, and and I'm I'm not certain on that, but I thought this was so cool to to that point, that when we are uh, mindful throughout our day of the things that are said about us or to us, and when we're nodding, that is saying to our brains, obviously, that that is true. We have confidence in that thought. So if you're reading a review, or if your kids are telling you that you messed up again, or if your husband is saying you know, whatever you're doing and these are negative thoughts, and you're kind of in that way that we sometimes do, yeah, you're right. I know, oh, you're right, I did that again. Oh my gosh, that's right. And you're nodding, you are um really opening up those pathways, those neural pathways, and it does stick. Mm-hmm. So the very quick change for that is to nod at the things that that we believe to be true about us so we can tell our brains, oh by the way, this is true. <laughs> Get with me on this, this is true. And nodding will say we've got confidence here. And and that's what I loved about the whole aspect of optimism, which is, you know, that negativity does stick, but optimistic thoughts cause a part of your brain to ignite, that connects you. To your problem solving ability. And I think that's pretty cool. So if you're looking to be hired or if you're in a position to hire people, you really want to be that optimist because when problems come up, the optimist is the one who is staying until they figure it out. The optimist is the one who believes there's a way we're going to get around this. We're going to figure it out. And the optimist is going to be loyal when maybe the bottom line is not so great. But earlier you had said about, you know, kind of false hope. And this is an area where in my love life, and I can already hear Linda smiling, in my love life, I'm just gonna hang on. I'm gonna hang on, I'm gonna keep working, I'm gonna be a different this, one one person can change it, all of those things that we do when really it would have been more beneficial for everyone in my case to, to let go. <laughs> Mine you know, too. and right? And I just I couldn't see it. I could see it in business. I really have been a late bloomer with the emotional intelligence that I have needed. And what's that thing you guys that the business people say about, you know, better to build another boat than to keep bailing water out of the one that's leaking or whatever, just build another ship. And there is, you know, a blind spot. There has been a blind spot for me. And I think for a lot of working women because of the dichotomy that we have had assigned to us and that we've chosen to receive about what makes us successful.
2: Well, And, and that's, that know, feels like a failure, you know. Having watched you for so many years, Leeds, your schedule was always really demanding. I mean, I remember when you had me on for my first book, Lives Charmed, and after we finished the taping, you said to me, you and your producer said, Linda, you should have your own show because it was fun and it was easy and we had a great time. And I looked at you, I was like, not a chance in hell, because <laughs> I watched you have to look so good all the time. Like, we would meet for dinner after a show, and you you would be embarrassed. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm wearing so much makeup. And, you know, it was like, I, I saw you struggle so hard to make PTA meetings and make soccer practice and whatever. And it was like, I looked at your schedule, and I was like... Oh, holy hell! I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go sit in my office with the dogs asleep at my feet and the cats asleep on my desk, and I'm not leaving the house. Like I hardly ever left the house. I could never have done what you did.
1: What a terrible example
2: I was. No, um, no but you but had then everything. Then. I didn't have like you had help and you had food on the table. So you know what I mean. Like I struggled so hard to live my dream, and you struggled living your dream in a different way. Both are right. admirable, but you got to touch obviously a lot more people.
1: You know, that is one thing that I have learned to let go of is here's what I know for sure. I did my absolute best every day. Yes. So did you. You know, I showed up every day. I showed up doing my best for my kids, uh, for my work, to honor my commitments, all of that stuff. But it is easy to hide behind that constant tailspin of overbusy. Mm-hmm. And just like some of you and people in my family too have, when pressure's on and when you're hurt, you hide in all kinds of things. You know, we sleep too much and we eat too much. And we don't eat enough and we spend too much money and we there's gambling or there's, you know, depression. There's wherever the places we go to hide so we don't have to feel hurt. Um, it just played into me creating more busyness. And because I'm so fed by my work and I love it so much and I have loved it so much, it did create a blind spot for me of not being able to or not wanting to see work wasn't the enemy. It was a lack of boundaries around work, yeah, which I have yeah. gotten much better about learning. But I think a lot of women, I, that movie, The Intern um, with Anne Hathaway really struck me. I had a scene just like her where she's, you know, she's creating her dream. She's running this internet business. She's got her husband, who's the lead parent, lean in at home, <laughs> right? And he's there doing all that, but feeling a little resentful, even though he's not really saying it, trying to be supportive and You know, she's taking the double whammy hit because you have to be, you know, really great businesswoman. You have to be great mom, great wife, all of it. And the working mom community isn't always as supportive. So when my kids were in school and we were having a bake sale, I said to the moms at the meeting, oh, what can I bring? And they would, oh, Lisa, don't worry. We know you're busy. Don't worry. You don't have to bring anything. Slap. uh, Yes, slap, stab. Besides, we don't allow the pink bakery boxes, (laughs) homemade. And And I let that sit for a second. And I said, oh, that's okay. I make a really, really great peanut butter cookie. And I'll bring those. So I got in my car and I thought, you know what? I'm not going to let them diminish what I have to offer because it looks different than what they have to offer. And I'm certainly not going to judge what they're offering because they've chosen another path. My God, this is what we fought so hard for. We each got to choose how we want to be. But I did proceed to go to the bakery. Get the cookies, put them in Ziplocs, write little handwritten notes, you know, Nate's Mommy's Homemade Cookies. <laughs> Nobody got hurt.
0: <laughs> I need a nap after hearing that.
1: <laughs> oh, you got the Ziplocs and everything. Um, I
0: really, really, really want to hear from you. But what you think the keys are to giving a great interview. I mean, when we were reading your bio in advance, it's just like, I was like, oh, my God, more hours logged on air than right. Casey case. I'm Like, that's incredible. <laughs> and Dick
1: Clark, like, what? I think you it's know, a just like, book record or something.
0: You don't have to make it three tips, just like from the heart. Great interview. How do you do it?
1: I think you lead with your empathy. And mm-hmm. that's what I write about in Fierce Optimism. That's one of the seven secrets is empathy. And professionally, The bottom line is whether you're a salesperson or whether you're an on-air reporter, whether you're a business executive, your customers, your employees, your listeners, they want to know that you understand them. They want to know that you get them. So to first look for what can I offer before I try to get back what I need, what I need to get. So what can I give first? So if it's Whitney Houston and I did an interview when she was, about to deliver Bubby Christina, and I saw that she was uncomfortable, and you know, he was the biggest star in the world sitting down with me, and I had some mandate, you know, from the producers get her to talk about x, y, and z, whatever. But all I could see was she's so scared about what she has to do here. She knows how to be a superstar. she didn't know how to be a mom. none of us did when we you know we don't <laughs> right? So I chose to take the time to really empathize with that and You know, share my own experience and make it safe for her to feel insecure and bloated and all the stuff we feel. And so we became allies. I think that in an interview, you become an ally with the person sitting across from you. And the common goal is you want a great outcome, but you first have to become allies. I think that's really it. You know, Ted Koppel told me one time I was sent to interview him and I was a young reporter and very um, intimidated. And I, I said that to him, I said, you know, I'm I don't really know how to interview you because, you know, I'm right in my way on this. I can't get out of my way of of just thinking, you know, I'm interviewing one of the greats and I'm going to look so foolish. And he said, look, whether you have heads of state across from you, you know, a relative, uh, the victim of a crime, it doesn't matter. Whoever's across from you, it's your table and you're in charge of that energy. So, What I took from that was, oh, wow, this is my table. I better set it accordingly. So whenever I'm going into an interview situation, I really try to be mindful of how do I want to set the table and what does that person need? Like Betty Davis didn't need a sycophant, you know, telling her how great she is and how much she (laughs) loved the movie. That isn't what she needed. She needed to be done. She needed to be done with it. Mm -hmm. And she liked to talk about her craft. So, you know, I skipped all the chat up questions and just went straight into craft and, you know, I think that that's an opportunity we all have. When I saw an Oprah show one time about a woman who had been in a coma, and when she came out, she told the people that had come into her room that she was aware of the energy. They brought it to the room. And we're all responsible for that. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. Like, she knew this one is love, and this one is distracted, and this one, she got it in her coma state, which kind of blew me away.
2: Lisa, you were at the top of your class in journalism school and then started out in news. But very quickly pivoted and helped create this new genre, which we now know it's normal now to have fun, casual people and celebrity-centered shows. But do you look back now and kind of marvel at how you were just being authentic and following your sort of intuition when people, including the bosses that you were quitting on, were telling you that you were
1: going to ruin your career? Yeah, that's when you really do have to love your haters. You know, you just do, but yeah, I'm sure that you know you all have. I'm sure everyone listening has gotten that kind of input from people who don't don't believe in what you're doing, um, don't see the vision, and maybe you haven't taught them how to receive you because you haven't yet stepped into your authenticity. But I was just beginning to realize that I wanted to tell stories. I really didn't care, Linda, if the stories were you know wildlife preserves or riding with an eighteen wheeler on you know a three day run or you know, stomping grapes, I didn't care. Hand I just lighting. wanted. To, yeah, I just wanted to be that conduit, but I, the news director did say, you are leaving behind what could be a really great news career, and no one's going to take you seriously, and you're not going to get hired if this show doesn't work, this fluff thing that you're going to do. <laughs> but you think back to 1979, 1980, that was when MTV started. E.T. started that year, and the pop culture changed. So it was my intuition and it was being willing to take, you know, they always say that genius requires bold action. Well, things that are not quite genius require our bold action too. We just have, <laughs> have to commit. I don't know if there's any big strategy. It was like back to the faith that I had of myself because I would get tripped up along the way, but I always came back to, I believe in me because my parents told me to believe in me because they believed in me. Yeah. What a great thing that we can give our kids and other people. Lisa,
0: before you take to the mic or the stage, or before you sit down to write, maybe they're different, do you have a ritual? Is there a prayer you say? Is there something you do?
1: I do have a ritual. I repeat my mother's advice to me, which is show up, do your best, let go of the rest. And I have a little physical thing that it's a silly thing that I always used to have music played when I would walk out on my talk show. And so it made it easy for me just to kind of, you know, do a little jump, which was just a kind of a little excited dance and a clap, which always said to me, okay, we're here, we're here, do it. And you have to show up. So that's always been, I guess, in a neuro linguistics programming kind of way, a way to get me to performance mode, which is really, and I don't want to pretend that it's a different persona, but it's the present mode. It's like, okay, I'm going to now have to let everything go that I, you know, didn't get my nails done and I didn't pick up the dry cleaning and we're going to have to have pasta again for dinner, whatever. I've got to let all that go because this is go mode and this is where my focus needs to be. And so that really just helps me.
2: Can we talk about teams for a second? You've had hundreds of employees that you've, you know, watched over thousands of people on your shows and your teams Uh, Danielle has a much bigger team than I do. I I have about four people that I work with. But what's your best guidance on being a good leader of teams? I have trouble sometimes about being organized enough. So I actually have pulled in people who can help me organize because I know that's not a strength of mine, not in my work, but in organizing the team. I actually can't organize
1: my team. What have you kind of learned on that? Uh, Just what you said. I think that the best leaders are vulnerable and when they're willing to show their vulnerability, that creates trust. And when you have trust, as a team, you are absolutely invincible. But it really doesn't happen unless it organically, and believe me, everybody messes up and everybody's fallible, and so it's very easy to be vulnerable because we all are. But to show that and to hold yourself accountable, because when you're showing your vulnerabilities and saying that you're holding yourself accountable, then you're making sure everybody in your team understands that that's a core value of yours, that that's that's an essential in your leadership and in the culture that you want to create for whatever job you're doing or whatever company or whatever project you're on. And I think letting other people, this isn't the management question, but letting other people empty out is really, really important. You know, when I was assigned a task on the show on Celebrity Apprentice and it was Donald Trump had put me on Geraldo's team because he had been so tough and (laughs) difficult to manage and he was being Geraldo and all that. So he put me as the project manager and I thought, okay, great. I didn't have a problem seeing that he wanted to talk first. That's great. Um, He wanted to get his ideas on the table. And then I think he truly was cool with going with the best idea. But it was very important that he um, have the respect of having other people listen to him. So again, that's kind of that empathy thing. But yeah, teams are, um, people need to know how to hit the target. And you have to show them the way to success. Because there's nothing more frustrating than being on a team and you don't know how to win. You instinctively want to, you know, please and you want to succeed. But if the leader has not had the vision and the inspiration enough to show you where the target is, then you're never going to hit it and you're not going to be happy with your team. Great point. Great point. Brilliant.
0: Okay. We take an intermission with every interview and this is our multiple choice segment. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Ah. LA or New York? LA. All right. Gold or silver? Swim. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, two is,
1: does, does platinum count? <laughs> um, yeah.
0: <laughs> Platinum counts. We'll take that one. Okay. Uh in terms of like your personal calendar, are you a digital girl or a paper girl? Both. Both. I'm all
1: about, I'm all about backup. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Lisa, what sign are you? This isn't part of the multiple choices, curiosity.
1: I'm Aries and in numerology, I'm a life path six. Okay. Use what's that however you want <laughs> to. What's, well, what's a six mean? You know, family. six is, it's family. Yeah, Linda, it's the mother number. Yeah. And I kind of go, well, wait, Oprah's a six. And, you know, my numerologist friend said, duh. duh
2: She's like cool. mother
1: of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, it's that kind of mother energy. So in my work teams, you know, I tend to get, and I think Linda, you do too, I get really close to people. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to remind myself that it's a work relationship. But for me, for the work relationship to work, it has to be intimate too. Yeah. You know, and I do tend to want to nurture and I love nothing more than seeing someone succeed and seeing a light come on for them or learning something from them and, and knowing how many people gave me opportunities. It's so great to ever be in a position to give someone, you know, to turn the knob that they already had. They're already at the door. I love that. So I do enjoy working in really close, close, intimate teams. And my husband's always running up around behind me saying, well, but.
2: <laughs> my mm-hmm. fiance does the same thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And they're
2: not going to change us.
1: Which is valuable, you know. Yeah. But he said, I would rather you be that girl, that trusting, nurturing woman who is going to occasionally get burned than to be the other way in the world, which doesn't offer, you know, nearly as many rewards. And I believe that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, most of the time, love wins. Not always, but the odds are actually pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, we have, we have two more multiple choices. Radio or TV?
1: Oh, Sophie's choice. I knew it! Yeah! Well, I'm, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say TV only because it comes with the radio portion. And with the way everything is you know, repurposed now, you don't have to say no to radio because you've said yes to TV. But I really don't. Um, my preference in terms of intimacy is radio. I have found that for me, again, this goes back to labels that we talked about earlier. I have this label, you know, I've spent a lot of time in radio, a lot of time in TV. And it's probably easier for me to leverage TV at the moment but that's fluid. Mm-hmm. It's multitasking. Okay, last one. Sleep or sex? Oh, come on. <laughs> I don't think you have great sex unless you have sleep.
2: <laughs> right? <laughs> that's right? Have you will not egg. have one better, without the other. Right? the best
1: hybrid sleep. answers we've ever had. I'm, I'm all about what Arianna Huffington is doing with her sleep priority path. I think it's a message we really need to get. And for someone who's so focused on neurological disease... And the hits that the brain takes when we deprive it of sleep, I've really tried and I'm you know, not 100% successful with it, but my husband and I try to keep each other in check with this. Sleep is just, it's not a luxury, it's essential, right? And you've mm-hmm.
2: really shifted on that, Lise. You were always yeah, I, like me. You and I wore our lack of sleep
1: like a badge. I mean, it, <laughs> we, hey, we've been bad. I know, and, but you know what? It's like, that's what we thought. You know, it's that whole business of you know better, you do better, right? But it's just like, I think, the balance pursuit. When I realized that it was so bogus and that there was not balance, that it did not exist in the middle of anybody's seesaw. And I was able to let that go and reframe that as, I don't balance my time, I'm investing my time. I want dividends for this investment that I'm giving. Today, I'm not balanced at all, but I'm getting dividends from the time that I'm spending working. It doesn't mean I balanced it out with, you know, putting on the biggest dinner and making great romantic love to my husband, it means that I'm going to get, I'm going to ultimately reap the rewards of this time. So I gave up looking for balance and I don't feel like an epic fail so much.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm going to change topics here. How many books are you reading right now? And what, if any, are standing out as your favorite?
1: Well, I because I've been writing on the subject, I've also been reading a lot of the subject of you know girl boss and which tends to be my addiction anyway. I'm a you know I'm an admitted self help junkie. It doesn't matter to me who the messenger is. I just love it. I'm like okay, great. I've heard that from everybody in the world, but now I'm hearing it from you, and it's different and it's new. And now I can hear it and internalize that in a different way. And and I think that probably has served me well to stop questioning. Like I said to you, Linda, you've written 3,000 books, you know, and, wow. and I'm like this woman who's just like barely cranking out like three books.
2: Whatever, you're so close behind.
1: But I've stopped thinking about, oh, well, is there value to this? And do people really need to hear from me? And, you know, my husband brilliantly said, that's not for you to decide. Just do the work, put it out there, yeah. and yeah. let everybody else decide if there's value or not. But I was really editing myself. And um, who you guys know this. Who said that? I think you reminded me of this, Linda. Who said that books are never finished, they're abandoned? Oh, gosh.
0: Oh, it's so true. true. I'll just take credit for that. <laughs> yeah, you do. <just>. Daniel, <laughs> I, I was thinking about Stephen I said it I was smart. short. Tiff. Tiff. Can I just tweet that? <laughs> um, can you tell the final stretch? Can you talk about your actual writing process? Do you have to sequester yourself? Do you do it in chunks? How do you get a book written?
1: You know, um, I'm still learning, and I'm happy to say that I'm encouraged by my learning curve. <laughs> That is another thing. Little victories, ladies and gentlemen. Every day that we accomplish something, don't minimize those little steps that we take. And, and I have come to terms with two steps forward and one step back is just a cha-cha, and I am dancing as fast as I can. I mean, for my book take two, I could not figure it out. So after I would drop my son off at the bus stop, I would walk for an hour, and I would um, put in my voice recorder in my phone what I wanted to write. And I'm telling you that became, and you can see that's the kind of book it is. It's like pick it up wherever it's kind of, you know, stream of consciousness. And that's what worked for me. That's what was on my mind. That was the way I could get it done. And that way it didn't overwhelm me as much. But yeah, I get in a zone and want to stay kind of in that zone a little bit. I'm not as boundary, Linda, as you are, who actually lets people know when you're in your cave, which I really appreciate as your <laughs> friend. I do. I do. I, I really appreciate that. And And I think people understand it and they relate to that and respect that. And it makes me really want to be good at my boundaries. So thank you for that inspiration. But I'm getting better at the process. But right now I have like millions of um, digital and handwritten. I'm sticky pads and everything, you know, organized digitally. I just, I can't figure out. I don't know if maybe I'll always be that way. What do you think? You write things down, don't you, Danielle? A lot of what I write online
0: becomes my book. Yeah. Which is uh, salvation. I mean, I'm writing a book right now and I just, I'm so grateful that I write every week and I carve, you know, I craft it and I put it out there. Voice memos that the feature on my iPhone oh, changed. Yeah. My life—it totally changed the game for me. It's great. It's it's brilliant. Um, I would say I run my business on voice memos. It's Mm -hmm. fantastic, and I got in a great habit a few years ago of getting almost every interview transcribed, and even my own videos. Like if I would do any kind of vlogging, I get that transcribed, and that has been—you know—when you sit down to put a book together, it's like winning the lottery. Like, oh my god. (laughs) I talked about that, and it's already in pixels, and it's there. I'm going to cut and paste and do what I do. So,
1: yeah, And you've got it. Yeah. You know, that, I think, is a, a lucky thing for people that do what I've done, electronic media, because being trained as a reporter, you triage information, right? And that's I'm what totally you're talking do. about. You do. You know, I get that, and that's why... You know, I work well under pressure, and I'm good at multiple inputs of information, and I can kill my darlings pretty well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can let go of things that I was in love with, and I'm getting better at that. But I do think that that when I get stuck, I go back to reporter mode.
2: Oh, Lise, I remember being so blown away by you. It was, I don't know, maybe 2008. And remember when I came into your studio, you were doing Hollywood Confidential, and I came in and did some of those green Hollywood spots. Yeah. you were so generous to let me do. And I was sitting there and I had done a fair amount of radio for my books over the years and always felt like it was pretty easy. But I was so humbled. I remember sitting across from you and they were giving you like the quickest notes like, OK, Lisa, now we need we need you to do a commercial for this and we need you to do something for this. And they kept they would interrupt us and have you do spots for our pieces and then spots for other things. You were we. Ridiculous. I mean, I was watching you probably like you were watching Dick Clark when you first started out. Remember how you were so amazed by him? I was so amazed by you because everything that came out of your mouth was flawless on the first take. The sound bites were a mile a minute. I mean, you just, everything was so polished. And I remember coming home and saying to my sister that I was just mesmerized. I mean, you're my girlfriend, but this was on a level that I couldn't even believe. And She goes well, you know. Lisa's been doing that for a while, Linda. (laughs) But uh, anyway, that was an aside. But you know, it's so much fun to watch somebody at the top of their game. And you know, you don't get more radio hours than Dick Clark and Casey Kasem without being
1: Uh, at the
2: top of your game.
1: That's first of all, thank you for sharing that story. That's a very beautiful memory for me. Mm -hmm. And I love that you tied it to Dick Clark. Uh, You couldn't give me a, a bigger compliment. But Dick Clark, as you know, was um, when I was a young girl. I had no idea that I would ever meet Dick Clark. I mean, come on! I'm from Irmo, South Carolina. How is that gonna happen? I wanted uh, my Barbie doll was named Barbara Walters, and um, they were all Report Barbies, and they ruled the world. They were in charge. Man, they were really go-getter. We got it going on types of, of Barbies, and so when when Reporter Barbie, the real Barbara Walters, got a million dollars for being named the first female anchor of the Network Nightly News, I was a freshman at the University of South Carolina. And I said to my friends, did you see that? That's the greatest thing ever. Barbara Walters making a million dollars, more than Walter Cronkite. I'm going to do that. I'm going to make a million dollars in the broadcast business. They thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever heard in their life. You're not leaving Irmo, listen to you. Come on. They don't have people like you on TV. You're on TV. And my mother kept me on track. She said, put your blinders on. Don't be distracted by that. Stay with your vision and run your race. They're not on the track with you. Run your own race. And boy, it's such simple advice that I use all the time. And when I watched Dick Clark, I watched him be in a zone because he loved his work and he had such respect for the audience and he had a skill set that allowed him to really connect. And that's always been the power for me is being able to, and as it is for the two of you and for most people listening, you know, we feel most alive when we are connected and when we are sharing our stories.
0: Beautiful writers and creatives, listeners, guess what? This podcast is sponsored by no one other than us because we don't take anybody else's money to talk about what we want to talk about. So here is our interstitial of hustling our own things. Linda, Linda Severson. You do a writer's retreat called Carmel, what is it called? Carmel Writing Retreats. Carmel Writing Retreats. Give us one sentence, what's it about? It
2: is going girlfriend's getaway style in one of the most alluring artist communities in the world to experience the mind blowing magic of sisterhood and synchronicity with your art.
0: If I come and hang out with you for the weekend, talk about my novel, my platform, my memoir, uh, what do I get at the end of the weekend?
2: I think if you go to the testimonial section on Book Mama, you're going to see a lot more than I could ever say. But people leave with permission. They leave with a plan. They leave so energized and clear about their path. They could come with 10 books and they know exactly what they're doing when they leave. And they leave with Sisters for Life. I mean, the connections are unbelievable.
0: And a lot of times they leave, or as the journey goes on, they're getting connections through you to agents, to publicists. Oh gosh, just last
2: week I taught a retreat, and on Wednesday of the retreat, I emailed an agent for one of the women, and she signed her by Friday, and they're already shopping. And that happens, I would say, at least every other retreat.
0: Beautiful. And that, listeners, concludes our moment of hustle.
2: Okay, Lise, I want to talk divorce for a minute. You and your ex have healed so much, as my ex and I recently have as well, and you're now great co-parents. Do you have any tips for women who are currently navigating a messy divorce?
1: Oh, and wow, was I ever as low as it gets, and I was so lost. Mm. Uh, You know, I was the one, it was hard, as it is for anyone, to be the one not chosen. And we had separated, and my husband had started seeing someone else which was his prerogative, although I never thought it would happen. And I, it wasn't really, I wasn't seeing anyone. I thought we're just going to get back together. We're just taking time apart to get stronger and my version of the story. And I thought, I'm his wife. I have children with him. I got it all over this woman. Right. I, right. And I looked at myself for daring to compare our journeys, which was so inappropriate because her journey is hers and mine is mine. And that was really inappropriate and destructive. But we right. fall into that trap. And ultimately, I was the one not chosen. And it was, as things are, it was, it was perfectly imperfect, mm-hmm. the way that it all ended up. But at work, I really had to rely on my little posse of friends and allies to prop me up and take the swelling out of my eyes and, you know, wipe up the mascara. And I had to figure out, as we all do, uh, okay, now what? Matt's the optimist thing. How quickly can I get to <laughs> How quickly can I get there? And it took me a while, but... Allowing myself to be optimistic about love allowed me to address and learn and be aware of that blind spot and allowed me to be 100% whole. When my new husband came around, even though he was 13 years younger, I said, all right, um, I'm going to count my blessings and not my stretch marks. (laughs) I'm not going to talk about of thinking that I'm, you know, sexy and the perfect woman and that he is willing to focus on what we have and not what we don't have, which is we will never have biological children. And that was really hard for me to take off the table because, you know, that's part of the essence of I'm a six. Remember, I'm the mother life path. Oh, yeah. And he's very involved with my kids. But I kept thinking, how can he ever be OK not having biological kids, which was an awful limit for me to put on him. And um, he told me, he said, let's agree not to talk about it for a year. I can see it's important to you. I can see that this is bothering you. It's not bothering me, but I want to ask if you're okay not discussing it for a year. We didn't. At the end of the year, he said, by the way, I'm still good with it. Where are you? And that's how I got to security of believing. You know, and he said, I appreciate you trying to take care of me emotionally with this, but I got this. I can handle it. Mm -hmm. It's really lovely. So yes, other side of This is not anybody's version of themselves to have you know this is not anybody's happily ever after is that you know I'm I'm not going to be married to one person and I've had times up at bat that you would think you know people say to me well who would you get love advice I say people like me that have had lots of chances that's where you want to get your love advice from
2: (laughs) (laughs) I always look at people who've been married multiple times now that I've been divorced as No different than people who lived with several people. I mean, I didn't marry a couple of boyfriends, but I lived with them. And so, to me, those were divorces too. You know, it's just, to me, somebody who's had multiple divorces is an optimist. They're out there trying to get it right, and they believe in love. And I'm not going to say that my ex-husband wasn't my soulmate. He absolutely was. And now Larry is my soulmate. And, you know, I'm hoping that we both live a really long life together. And if not, if I leave or he leaves... We're going to have more soulmates. I mean, maybe that's looking for the pony in the pile of dung, but that's how I see it.
1: You know what? And I, I think that's really loving. And things that end, you get to decide whether you decide it's a failure or what is it. But it ended. It changed. Yeah. And um, yeah. yeah, you know, and Stephen and I were both like, we're never getting married again because he'd been married before too. And we were like, we just don't need to get married. And as we realized our love for each other was so deep that we're both traditional people. You know, and we wanted to give that thing. It was important for us to give it to each other. And we were just both in that same, we arrived at that same place of what's big enough to hold this love. Some people don't need it. We wanted yeah. it. But I think that there are lots of people who have epic love stories without it. And sometimes they decide to do it or not do it. And it doesn't necessarily, or it doesn't ever, I think, change your, your feelings. It just kind of gave us a vessel to put it in that we felt really good about. Mm. a vessel for fierce optimism
0: I mean, mm. all oh, unity yes. should be based on that lisa you are wow you are the embodiment of lovely and you really own your table with incredible grace i'm really lovely thank you so much
1: uh gosh thank you girls i that's a very lovely i received that with great gratitude. I'm such fans of both of you. And I've been in love with Linda forever. You're my original girl crush. And um, you are. And I look at, at your targets for your life and what you've wanted and how you've mothered and how you've loved and how you've been a friend and a sister and all the roles that you take on. And so I just I thank you for being that mirror and You have opened the door to Danielle, and now I believe we are sister goddesses. Is it not true?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, Lisa, I think if you write another book, it should be called My Barbie Doll Was Named Barbara Walters. (laughs)
1: Right? (laughs) Oh, my God, Lisa, let's work on it. That's the next one. (laughs) Right? I mean, those were all my fantasies. And my sister kept saying, I want to be a Barbie. Who can I be? Who can I be? I said, okay, fine. You will be my assistant. And what does the assistant do? What do they do? I said, when Ken calls, you just break the date. (laughs) I never wanted to go out with Ken.
2: <laughs> okay, Lisa, that's what we're going to work on when you come to Carmel. We're going to do the Barbie doll of Barbara Walters. Okay, good. When am I coming? Um, June. There you June, go, okay. okay. I right. think I can do June. I love you both so much. Thank you for making Gratitude. Love. Gratitude. Thank um, you. gratitude.
1: Gratitude. Big hugs.
0: Wasn't that a great interview? As you guys know... The clicks, the stars, the great reviews on any kind of podcast helps us get the word out there. So click, click and do your thing and know that we are ever grateful. Thank you.
2: To hear more and find out how we can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com where you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Danielle and I are so grateful you've spent your time with us. Right on.